um, we're not going to read a bit of uh, chapter two um, where Nehemiah uh, sneaks out and, um, uh, and, uh, and goes and does a bit of a survey uh, of Jerusalem and what needs doing. But as we read chapter three, I think you're going to see um, the plan that he put into place as he walked around <laughs> the city a bit. And um, you might find it helpful just to watch this on the screen because the geography um, is significant. So here we go, uh, Nehemiah uh, chapter three. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gates. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zechor, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasenah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Jumping to verse 5, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles wouldn't put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joyada, son of Pasea, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. In verse 8, Uziel, son of Harhaya, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. In verse 12, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zanoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired, was repaired by Shalom, son of Koi Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Bethzur, made repairs. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Imer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, 
son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters next to him. Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. And then reading on in chapter 4, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Well, that's a tour around the city of Jerusalem. Julia and I were um, in, uh, in Florence uh, last week, and um, I think we kind of walked around quite a bit of, um, uh, of Florence, an ancient and uh, quite remarkable city. It must have been, it must have been amazing, wasn't it, for, to see these walls of this ancient city um, being rebuilt. And um, uh, we're going to be thinking about uh, that whole passage as we come again to uh, Nehemiah. And he's just doing the technology bits for me again, and then I'll see it and uh, we'll, we'll get underway uh, as we look at this. The Bible is full of stories, stories that raise questions for us. In the case of some stories, the big question is, well, is that true? <laughs> There's some bits of the Bible that you just think, wow, this is JK Rowling. This is amazing. Is it true? The Israelites escaped from the Egyptian ruler, the Pharaoh, by crossing a sea which rolled back due to divine intervention. And then as the Pharaoh chased them, the sea crashed back into its former place, drowning the pursuing army. And we say, wow, did that really happen? <laughs> well, Jesus believed it did. In order to be released in the first place, uh, an angel from God had struck dead in one night all the firstborn of Egypt, but the homes of the Israelites had been spared. And we think, wow, is that true? Could that be true? Can we believe it? In a sense, it's the obvious question. It's the question that many non-Christians would have reading the Bible. Is this true? Or is this Harry Potter? And, um, and, and there's a sense in which that's, that's a very legitimate question, isn't it? To which we need to have good answers as well. What we're doing today doesn't really raise that question at all. There's, there's nothing particularly remarkable in one sense, nothing miraculous, at least, about what happens here in Nehemiah 3. There's no record of kind of angels being sent to build the walls, so like the, you know, you don't kind of see them quite, but the, <coughs> but the bricks, they just kind of appear out of nowhere or, or, or are resurrected out of the ground because, you know, there was a wall there originally and wham, they kind of move into place. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing like that that we're told that goes on. 
Here are ordinary people who build a wall. Now, those of you who are engineers or project managers or something like that, you still look at this and you think, that was quite something to do this job in this kind of way. I mean, that, that really was quite something. But um, we're not being told about a, a kind of miraculous uh, event here in Nehemiah 3. What we're looking at is a commonplace story at one level of a group of exiles returning to their homeland and seeking to rebuild their city. They start with the city wall, the defences. You can imagine a, a bunch of Iraqis returning to a city after it had been liberated from Islamic State. They, they begin by getting the defences in place so that they don't get overrun again. Uh, a leader organises them. There's method in what they do. Systematic rebuilding. All sorts of people get involved. School teachers, jewellers, imams, musicians. A few are professional builders, but the whole community gets stuck into the task. It's a united effort. Of course, the old enemy taunts and threatens them. And uh, some of them get scared and leadership is required to help them press on. Well, in a sense, that's, that's this story, but it's not a bunch of Iraqis returning to somewhere that had been uh, held by Islamic State. This is a bunch of Jewish people uh, coming from um, Iran <laughs> and Iraq, that whole area, back to their homeland and, and rebuilding. Muslims returning to a city in Iraq, it's Jews returning from Iraq and Iran to Jerusalem. But in those terms, it's a believable story, isn't it? The first question's entirely easy. Is it believable? Yes. There's no reason to think it's not true. So that leads us on to a second question. It's the question that we need to ask about these Old Testament Bible stories and New Testament ones as well. What are we meant to take from it? Is this simply narrative historical background to the Jewish people or are we to learn something from it? Well, as Bible-believing Christians, we rightly like to see what we can learn. And here's the kind of, of lesson that um, people have drawn from uh, this chapter, things like this, we're going to come back to them. God has a part for everyone to play in his purposes, irrespective of their qualifications. I don't know whether there are any perfume makers. Have we got any perfume makers here today? No, no, maybe not. Um, well, if we did, then God could have a part for you to play as a perfume maker. Well, whatever, whatever it is that is your gift, your, your, your area of expertise, the thing that you do day to day, a passage like this can teach us, well, we have a part to play in God's work, in God's plan. Or you could take a lesson like this, and we'll come back to this as well. If we're going to make progress, we need to be united and organised. You should expect that in every group of people, there will be some who are too proud to put their shoulders into the work. You can take that kind of lesson here, because there were these people from Tekoa who said, no, 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 we don't, we don't want to get involved. We're not prepared to work under leaders from Tekoa. We're not prepared to work under uh, the supervisors you put over us. No, no, 
you, you could draw any of those kinds of lessons from um, Nehemiah chapter 3 and a few more. People have used the story of Nehemiah to draw out lessons for how churches should work, how to organize, how to lead, and so on. And as I say, there's loads we can think about at that level, and none of it's wrong. But I want to suggest that if you get there too quickly, you miss the point. If we read these stories only in that kind of way, then we miss much of the power of what God intends us to get from these Old Testament history passages. The moral lessons, the tips on how to lead, the importance of unity to getting the job done in the life of the church, all of that is far more powerful if we get the big issue. You see, Nehemiah... This, this story of, of Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of this city, it's really about one big thing. We get a couple of reminders of that in uh, Nehemiah 3 and Nehemiah 4, but it's very explicit in what we looked at earlier on today in that prayer that Nehemiah prayed in chapter 1. Remember, he says to the Lord, Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. The place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah is lamenting over the desolation of Jerusalem, and as he prays, he recalls this promise that God will make sure that his people will be able to be in a place that he has chosen as a dwelling for his name. What's this place where the name of the Lord will dwell? Well, it's simply this. It's the temple. It's the temple. It's the place of worship, of approach to God on the basis of sacrifice. The Lord, through Moses, had demanded the release of God's people from Egypt so that they might worship him. The Israelites on their way back to Palestine were told not to worship like the people of the land, but to seek the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name as a dwelling for his name. To that place you are to bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's what, it's what he says in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and uh, verses 4 to 6. Let me, let me just turn to that for a moment because this is, this is a critical moment in the, um, in the history of the Israelite people. Deuteronomy 12. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, referring to the peoples around, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go 
There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. You see, this business about building, rebuilding Jerusalem, it's not about national pride. It's, it's, not, it's not about the symbol of a capital city. You know, you look around, around Europe and we have these great cities. They were city-states at one time, weren't they? Um, and great cities with, with huge buildings which projected power. They said, we're it. We, we saw this so clearly in, in Florence last, last week. These, these great buildings, including great churches. But, but what they were about, they, they were about saying, we are powerful. We have authority. Projections of human power. And um, uh, political authorities continue to do that, don't they? Erect huge buildings or, you know, things that just show off their capacity. I mean, now it tends to be Olympic Stadia and stuff like that. I know, but do, 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 you know, do you know what I mean? This is this is this is this is a matter of national pride. Well, the rebuilding of Jerusalem at the end of the day wasn't really about that. At the end of the day, the rebuilding of Jerusalem was because God had a place where people could approach Him on the basis of sacrifice. That's the big issue. It's all about people being able to approach the living gods on the basis of sacrifice. The ch chapter 3 is the story of rebuilding. Chapter 4 is a story of opposition. We're going to return to that a bit more tomorrow, but we'll look at it a little bit even today. But, but both chapter 3 and chapter 4 start in ways that remind us that that is really what it's about. We've seen it from chapter 1. We, we could read chapter 4 simply as a, as a story about the fact that we should expect opposition in God's work and how to respond. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a Christian reading. We'll, we'll see that tomorrow. But um, you, see, you see, one of the things that we learn from chapter 4 right at the beginning is that sometimes it's the people who are opposed to what God is doing who really get what it's about. And that was certainly the case with this guy, Sam Ballack. Did you notice what he said? When he sees them rebuilding, he gets very angry. He says, what are these Jews doing? These pesky Jews back here again. They're a nuisance. Will they restore their wall? Will they offer their sacrifices? You get it? See, he, he knows what it's about. This rebuilding of the wall, it, it's, it's not just about a city's defences. It's about a place of sacrifice. Worship through sacrifice. 
You say, well, okay, I can see that he gets it there in chapter four, but you said it's there in chapter three as well. Yes, it is there. Any, any inhabitant of Jerusalem would get it. You see, the story of chapter three is that the wall was rebuilt. It was done in sections. Families and trade groups, even people from other cities, Mizpah, Bethzur, Tekoa, and so on, worked hard, zealously, to build assigned sections from one gate to another. It was, it, it was all happening bit by bit, um, simultaneously, they were, they were building. And um, when we, sorry, I should have put these up a little bit earlier. Um, uh, when, when, we see, when we see what's going on here in chapter 3, it's very striking. Because the rebuilding moves around that city wall. People start building all at the same time, but Nehemiah starts his account of it. Do you notice where he starts? Where does he start? He starts at the Sheep Gate. And we work around the wall in chapter 3 until we get to the Sheep Gate. What's that? about. Why the sheep gates? Why does this story begin and end with the sheep gates? Well, for this reason. Any inhabitant of Jerusalem would have known this. It's the gate nearest the temple where sacrificial sheep were brought into the city so that the people of God could worship in the only way possible on the basis of sacrifice for sin. That's what's coded in to Nehemiah 3. You say, well, I wouldn't have spotted that. Well, you would if you're a Jerusalem Jew. The sheep gates were so significant that when Nehemiah tells the story of the rebuilding, he starts there and he ends there. It's the big Old Testament theme. Why does God want to release Israelites from Egypt? So that they can worship. So that they can worship. Worship the gods who is, there we go, moved on. God wants to release Israelites from Egypt so that they can worship. What's the big accomplishment of David's dynasty? It's the temple. Why are the Israelites brought back from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah? To restore the temple. It's the big theme of the Bible. Let me take you into uh, John's Gospel. Uh, Jesus was once walking towards another preacher, his cousin, John. And when John saw him, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
He was talking about a sacrificial lamb. John was saying, he's the one we need if our sin, our rebellion is to be dealt with so that we can worship. Do you see? The Israelites were released for worship. David's dynasty, particularly his son Solomon, built a temple for worship. Ezra and Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem to re-establish this place of worship on the basis of sacrifice, a temple. And when John sees Jesus coming, he says, look, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. We need our sin, our rebellion to be dealt with so that we can worship. A little later in John's Gospel, Jesus was having a, a conversation with a Samaritan woman, actually possibly even one of Sanballat's descendants, we don't know, <laughs> from that part of the world. And uh, uh, in that conversation, they're, they're talking about um, how, how can you worship? What, what's the basis on, on which you can, you can worship? John 4 and um, uh, verse 19. And uh, she says to him, look, I know that you Jews say that you should worship in Jerusalem. We, we say that, um, you know, there's this mountain that we've got that you people should worship on. Um, uh, what, what, what is it? How can people worship? Tell, tell me about this. Do you, do you have to worship there or here? And Jesus says to her, uh, no, no, it's not going to be like that in the future anymore. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. When the Lord Jesus Christ will have laid down his life for us, his sheep, then there will be access for people all over the world, you and me included. There'll be access for people in Leftwich. <laughs> to come to God in worship on the basis <coughs> of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here's the big picture. Nothing matters more than that people are brought to the place where they can worship the God who is. And the only way that we can do that is on the basis of sacrifice. And if you're not yet a Christian, I want you to get this before uh, anything else, over and above anything else that you might grasp onto during this weekend. All the, all the other things that we might learn, all the, all the little lessons about how to get stuff done, about, about organisation and working together and so on. Nothing matters more than you should become a worshipper of the living God and there's only one basis on which that can happen. It's for you to receive Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross as the only way your sins can be forgiven so that you can have access to God. 
Let me say that again. The only way, the only place that allows us to come into the worship of God is that place where we have received the forgiveness that comes through Jesus' sacrifice. And as we build as God's people, that is the big issue. Friends, you're, you're thinking, I'm so excited for you. You're thinking about, you know, church building and, some, you know, and, and all of that. But here's the big issue. It's not bricks and mortar. And it wasn't really bricks and mortar back in Nehemiah's day either. The big issue is people being able to worship the living God on the basis of sacrifice. And our buildings and our church expenditures and our expenditure of energy and all the rest of it needs to focus ultimately on this big issue that people in this locality be brought to the place, not the physical place, brought to that place where they see that they need to be forgiven by the God who is and they find that forgiveness on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. And yes, we need premises where we can proclaim that. And yes, we need premises where we can live that out together and all the rest of it. But here's the big thing. People worshipping God through Christ who died for us. Nothing is more important than that. And so we move ahead, as did Nehemiah, with our big building ideas and all the rest of it, with that in mind. And I say again, if you've not, not yet come to that place yourself, where you see that as your biggest need, that you be forgiven through the, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and through faith in him, and... And that as you are forgiven, you will be able to worship the God who is, then that's the first step for you. And for those of us who have, well, let's, let's get this really straight in our minds. Because that big issue then changes all the other lessons that we can draw from a book like Nehemiah or, or elsewhere. Let, let, let me try and apply it like this as we draw to a close uh, this morning. If people are going to be brought to worship God through the sacrifice of Christ, then no amount of organisation sh should be too much trouble for us. Isn't that right? No amount of, 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 of the hard work of organisation should be too much trouble for us. Nehemiah had his workforce organised. He had teams led by capable leaders. We saw that as we kind of walked around those walls, didn't we? Here are these people, they're in teams, they're led by capable leaders and they work together. And people were willing to be led. They got on with the tasks of building their sections of the wall. And churches need that kind of discipline. 
Occasionally I, I meet people who say, oh, you know, church work's so difficult because you're working with a volunteer workforce. It's much easier with paid employees, they say, because you know, you can sack them. Um, <laughs> it's easier to train and discipline paid workers. In church life, most of us are, are volunteers. But look, if we really get it, if we get that what we're about is, is a building not made with hands, the, the, the setting in place of living stones, a worshipping community, individuals who, who, are, who are like stones set in place, then we should be the most disciplined and united workforces that the world sees. Isn't that right? And we should be engaged in teamwork and responsive to team leaders <coughs> and willing to move forward together and not argumentative and not difficult. <laughs> Because the big issue is up there in front of us. And, it, and it's not about my ego and my job and my skill and all of that. It's, it's about a world in need. It's about people out there who live and die without hearing of Christ. It's all bigger than me and my pettiness, isn't it, then? Sorry to put it like that, but isn't, isn't that it? <laughs> and, and we'll be the most flexible workforce that there is as well. <laughs> Nehemiah's bricklayers were men and women, religious leaders and goldsmiths, nobles and ordinary people, even perfumers. For goodness sake, perfumers. <laughs> Becoming bricklayers. I don't know anything about perfume making. Maybe there's some synergy, I don't know. <laughs> and, and apart from the ignoble nobles of Tekoa, no one said, oh, that's below me. No one said, I wasn't trained for this, you know. I can't do that. But they, they put their hands to what was there and needed doing at the time. When opposition threatened, half of them had to take up arms while the other half worked on with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. But you see, if you get the big picture, if you, if, if you get it that what we're about is men and women, boys and girls, coming to a place where on the basis of trust in Christ they become worshippers of the true and living God, then it doesn't matter who you are, accountant, doctor, fireman, teacher, pensioner, stay-at-home mum, dad, quantity surveyor, engineer, school teacher, nurse, I, all will muck in together to get on with the task. So that churches should be the most disciplined and united workforces and the most flexible. Now, I, I'm saying that these are real lessons to draw out, but they, they come with so much more power when you get the big picture, don't they? It's, it's no longer a little moral story about how churches should work together. This, is, this matters. <laughs> and the most trusting. Chapter 4 is all about how Nehemiah and his workers responded when opposition came. 
and we're going to come back to that um, tomorrow. Uh, but there, there's, a, there's a point later on in, in uh, chapter 4 of, uh, of Nehemiah when uh, he acknowledges how vulnerable uh, they are and uh, he puts, um, oh, I suppose what we'd say today, a contingency plan in place. Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. And they've got threats coming against them. We're actually quite vulnerable, he's saying. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. So here's the contingency plan. If there's a threat coming at one place, they'll sound the trumpet at that one place, and everyone's got to you know, get there as quickly as possible to fight off the enemy there. Right? That's the contingency plan. But then notice what he says. Our God will fight for us. Now, he doesn't say, our God will fight for us, so um, I won't bother blowing a trumpet or anything. We'll, we will have our contingency plan in place. But here's our ultimate confidence, not in our contingency plan, but that our God will fight for us. So they continued the work. Verse 21 starts. Here's the big issue. As you've moved forward as a church, it's this, this big fact that nothing matters more than, the, uh, than, than that people are brought to worship God on the basis of sacrifice. It's all through the Bible. And here's the big encouragement that that reality, as we recognize it, comes with a promise, a guarantee. For we're told in the book of Revelation that John sees the end before it's arrived. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. And were holding branches, palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God has set his guarantee on what he's going to do. Jesus says, I will build my church. And neither Sanballat nor the gates of hell. No, he doesn't say the bit about Sanballat, but I'm just picking up from Nehemiah, you see. Neither Sanballat nor the gates of hell will prevail against Christ. If I can put it this way, our new Nehemiah, <laughs> who will build a place of worship, a community, where his name dwells, where his sacrifice on the cross is central, and where people can be brought to worship the one true and living God on the basis 
of what Christ has done for us. I will build my church, says Jesus, and Revelation tells us, and it will be full. <coughs> overflowing. From all around the world. A vast multitude. An uncountable number. So we, yes, we need to be disciplined and united. Yes, we need to be flexible. But we can afford to trust because God will see to it that his new Jerusalem will be built and will be inhabited by this vast multitude. Opposition's inevitable. We'll look at that tomorrow. But progress is guaranteed because the building of a new Jerusalem is God's work in which he invites us to take part. What better boss? What more noble challenge? What greater opportunity to invest our talents and time and resources? than in working for Jesus, our new Nehemiah. And in worshipping the one who gave himself for us. Well, may God help you as a church as you move forward and grant you that unity and grant you that flexibility and energy in all that you seek to do as a congregation for him. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that you've reminded us that we need to look at the world around us and stare its realities in the face and lament. Thank you that you've called us to pray seeing who it is that you are in your awesome power and your absolute determination to fulfill that which you have promised and that which you purpose in and through the Lord Jesus Christ amongst us as your people. Thank you, Lord, that you set before us the big issue of access to you through sacrifice that we might worship you. Thank you that you provided for that in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Pray that as we see these big things, we may be those who respond actively, passionately, committedly, unitedly, flexibly, that we might serve you. Hear us and help us, we ask, for your name's sake.